Welcome back to Coriam, the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue Emergency Medicine Residency Program. I'm Breedsi, and today I'd like to welcome one of our very own residents, Dr. Mukul Ramakrishnan. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Bree. Yeah, of course. Mukul decided to tackle one of the hottest current topics in EM because of the endless number of patients we keep seeing presenting with dizziness. So, today we're going to chat about the dreaded but critical posterior circulation stroke. Exactly. Something that both surprised and scared me was the fact that posterior circulation strokes account for nearly 20 to 25% of all ischemic strokes. They're easy to miss, they're really hard to diagnose, and recent studies suggest that nearly 35% of cases actually are missed in the ED. That's more than a third. That's way too many. There's been a lot of coverage in the EM world regarding the topic, and rightfully so. We need to do a better job of keeping it on our radar. So, question for you, Muckle. How many patients on your most recent ship presented with dizziness as the chief complaint? (laughs) Enough to make me dizzy. You and me both. So, unfortunately, many patients with these kinds of strokes present with an initial complaint of dizziness, among many other vague symptoms. So, how do we figure out which of these patients need more extensive testing for posterior stroke? Hmm, I have a feeling we're going to cover that. Right you are. So, first things first. What are the risk factors for developing posterior circulation strokes? Well, for posterior ischemic strokes, they're very similar to the risk factors for all types of cerebrovascular disease. Think of the 60-year-old smoker with the typical hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and metabolic syndrome. Speaking of ischemia, embolic strokes are actually the most common cause of posterior circulation strokes. So keep your eye out for rhythm disorders, including the classic AFib. Exactly right. Atherosclerotic plaques are actually the next most common cause, and then lastly is hemorrhagic. How do these patients present? Well, as we mentioned, posterior stroke can be very subtle and difficult to diagnose. I wish there was a triad, mnemonic, or pathognomonic smell, but we're out of luck. The presentation can include ataxia, nystagmus, altered mental status, headache, unilateral limb weakness, blurry vision, weakness, or just plain old malaise. So, pretty nonspecific symptoms. My number one pearl and our first takeaway for this case is just to keep it on the differential. Even thinking about it puts you in a better position than most. That's exactly right. Look at the show notes for localizing findings for specific lesions. So, given that dizziness has such a broad differential, what else are you thinking about, Muckle? Well, for me, there are three main categories that can cause dizziness. And the first one are central causes, which can include toxidromes, traumatic brain injury, intracranial hemorrhages, dissections, infections, seizure, and press syndrome. Okay, let's pause for a second. An important point about that dissection. In any patient with neurological findings who reports neck pain, keep dissection high on your list. Dissections are actually one of the more common causes of posterior circulation strokes in younger patients, especially with a history of neck injury. So careful about writing off that young, healthy patient with neck pain as just musculoskeletal. Make sure you do a very careful neurological exam. Great point, Bree. So the first category was central. The second major category for us is peripheral causes, which includes neuritis, labyrinthitis, BPPV, Meniere's disease, schwannomas, otitis media, or aminoglycoside toxicity. And then finally, you have the last category, which is other. Yeah, and this hodgepodge includes ACS, Wernicke's, electrolyte abnormalities, anemia, and thyroid disorders. Yeah, a little tough to remember. Dizziness can be a really vague complaint, and as you can see, the differential is massive. So how do you approach these patients with these vague, possibly stroke-like symptoms, Rhi? Well, I think classically when we think of stroke, 
we're thinking of anterior stroke symptoms, many of which show up on the NIH stroke scale. Things like focal weakness, aphasia, dysarthria, and numbness. For posterior stroke, unfortunately, presenting symptoms are not the classic stroke symptoms. Things like dizziness, as we mentioned, but also altered mental status, weakness, quote-unquote, I don't feel good, vomiting, and neck pain. Swami and Evie Marcolini did a fantastic piece on the November MRAP describing episodic, triggered, versus acute vestibular syndromes. Basically, be wary of symptoms that don't resolve or are not episodic, what they call acute. So with your run-of-the-mill BPPV patients, just take a pause and see if they're persistently symptomatic. It doesn't necessarily mean that they have a posterior stroke because acute vestibular neuritis can present the same way, but at least think about it. Exactly. What about centrally caused presentations, Muckle? So central causes of dizziness usually, but not always, present with sudden onset persistent with an unclear severity with possible neurologic deficits. In central causes of dizziness, you can have worsening with head movement and headache is possible, but the absence or presence of either of those doesn't really solidify the diagnosis. Okay, great. We talked about a good history for this patient, and onset is one of the things that's really important. There are time cutoffs for eligibility for medical thrombolysis if the cause is a posterior circulation stroke. So worst case scenario, I'm taking care of a 73-year-old hypertensive diabetic smoker with three hours of persistent dizziness associated with ataxia. Really, really concerning for a posterior circulation stroke. So now I have the history. What's next? Well, if the patient is within the four and a half hour window and you're concerned for a stroke, definitely call a code stroke to help get more resources. Do a thorough physical exam, including cranial nerve exam, visual fields, gait, finger to nose, sensation, pronator drift, and the NIH stroke scale. Always, always walk your patient when you're doing your neuro exams to check for ataxia, unless, of course, they look like they're going to fall over if they stand up and hurt themselves. <laughs> Got it, Bree. Here's a quiz question for you. What is the most sensitive test for a posterior circulation stroke? Let me know if you need a hint. <laughs> Um, so you would think an MRI, but it's actually the HINTS exam. That's correct. The HINTS exam is really tricky, but it's an amazing, non-invasive, extremely sensitive test that you can perform at the bedside. Okay, so before we get into the nitty-gritty of the HINTS exam, should I be doing the Dix Hall Pike and the HINTS exam on the same patient? Never, ever. These exams are different and are used to evaluate different things. The Dix Hall Pike is used to evaluate for peripheral cause, particularly BPPV. The HINTS exam is exclusively for actively persistent, currently vertiginous patients, not episodic or triggered symptoms. Okay, so that's a really important distinction. So, Brie, what is the HINTS exam? The HINTS exam stands for head impulse, nystagmus, and test of skew. If any of the three tests is concerning for a central cause, the entire exam is concerning for a central cause. Please take a look at the show notes for a great video by one of our very own interns, Dr. Jay Lin, on how to perform this. First is the head impulse. How do we do that, Muckle? Okay, the head impulse test. Tell the patient to focus their gaze on your nose. Take the patient's head in your hands, rotate their head 20 to 30 degrees laterally, then back to center with a quick, smooth motion while focusing on their eyes. This avoids any rapid, violent uh, neck movements that could cause them to have some injury. If they have a peripheral cause of vertigo, you'll see a corrective saccade when they readjust to stare at your nose. If this is a central cause, you'll be able to focus on their nose the entire time. So you're saying patients with central badness will be able to keep their gaze on your nose the entire time? 
Yeah, it's a little confusing. Normal patients with no pathology can also keep their eyes focused on your nose. The key depends on if the patient is currently symptomatic. If not symptomatic, they are normal. If they are symptomatic, then it's concerning for a central cause for their dizziness. That's why we only do the test on currently symptomatic patients. What's the next part of the test? The N is for nystagmus. Ask the patient to look to the left and to the right. When they look to one side, take a look for the fast beating of the eyes, and then repeat with the gaze to the other side. If the fast beating nystagmus is the same direction to both eyes, that suggests a peripheral cause. If the fast beating nystagmus is bidirectional or vertical or rotational, it's bad news bears and suggests a central cause. And for some additional style points, don't ask the patient to follow your finger when doing gaze testing. Some neurologists suggest that fixation on an object can actually suppress nystagmus. You can put a sheet of paper on one side of the patient's head and ask them to look at the sheet of paper. Nice tip. So the HI was for head impulse, the N was for nystagmus, and lastly the TS is for test of skew. Tell the patient to focus on your nose, then cover the patient's right eye with your hand. Quickly move your hand to cover the left eye and look for any movement in the right eye. If there's any vertical or diagonal correction in their eye to refocus on your nose, there is concerning for a central cause as well. If it's a peripheral cause, there won't be any correction in their gaze. Okay, got it. By the way, I really like how you describe each test as peripheral versus central because positive versus negative is very confusing. Okay, so give me a wet your pants patient scenario. Your 73-year-old hypertensive diabetic smoker with three hours of persistent dizziness who has a taxion exam. The cranial nerve exam was okay, but upon Hintz exam, you find that the patient is able to keep their eye on your nose during the head impulse exam, does have bidirectional or vertical nystagmus, and does have a vertical correction on the test of skew exam. Yep, my pants are wet. But just to be clear, a patient just needs one of these three findings to make you concerned. Exactly. Again, please go watch the video in the show notes for a visual aid on how to do the Hintz exam. It's a tough exam to perform, let alone to remember what the findings are concerning for central cause. So, if you have a patient who needs a Hintz exam done during your shift, take a look online to refresh yourself. So, now I have this patient I'm worried about. What next? Great question. As with most stroke evaluations, a non-con head CT is actually a great way to rule out an acute hemorrhage. Make sure to let your radiology colleagues know you're concerned about a posterior stroke so they go all the way down to the base of the cerebellum. These tests are fast at ruling out acute bleeding, but not really sensitive for acute ischemic strokes. If your CT is negative, you're concerned for ischemic stroke, your next test is going to be an MRI. How does the MRI pan out for sensitivities, Brie? So, diffusion-weighted MRI is actually the gold standard for diagnosing ischemic strokes. Don't forget to ask for thin cuts through the brainstem to help our neuroradiology colleagues find some itty-bitty but really important lesions. However, there's one big caveat with this gold standard imaging. Hmm, what's that? While MRI sensitivity for posterior circulation ischemic strokes is significantly decreased in the first 24 hours of onset, so a negative MRI does not guarantee that no ischemic event has occurred, which puts us in a tough position, but we do have a saving grace, the Hintz exam. Exactly, it's so true. In the first 24 hours, the Hintz exam is actually more sensitive than the MRI for identifying ischemic events in the posterior circulation. Well, that puts a lot of pressure on my physical exam. Yeah, but that's all the more reason you should feel really comfortable with your Hintz exam. In addition, hopefully at this point, you have your stroke neuro colleagues on board, and they'll help you out. And don't forget to get a CT angiogram head and neck to evaluate for any dissections in that patient with concerning symptoms and neck pain or neck injury. 
Alrighty, let's say either my MRI or my HINTS exam identifies an ischemic lesion. What are my next steps in management? How do I fix my patient? So, good news is that you don't have to remember anything too different from any other stroke. So, if your patient's within the four and a half hour window, and if there are no contraindications, your patient's eligible for medical thrombolysis with TPA. In fact, there have been studies showing that TPA in posterior ischemic strokes has equal benefit with decreased risks when compared to anterior circulation strokes. Well, that's great news. Unfortunately, many of our patients don't present this in this time frame because the symptoms are so subtle and vague. But the option is available to us if they do. What other options are there? Mechanical thrombectomy is another option. There haven't been any studies in the States regarding this topic, but clinicians in Germany had similar rates of success for mechanical thrombectomy when comparing anterior and posterior strokes. The time frames have been increasing more and more for eligible stroke patients. Up to 24 hours have been suggested, but the time frame will be institution-specific, so check with your neurology team and hospital administrators. So posterior ischemic strokes can be treated with medical thrombolysis and endovascular thrombectomy. What if they aren't eligible for either? Well, hopefully your neurology and stroke team is on board at this point. If not, definitely consult them. You'll be in close contact with them regarding management. But a good starting place is to give aspirin as soon as hemorrhage is ruled out, elevate the head of the bed above 30 degrees, keep O2 sats above 94%, and use antihypertensive medications to control blood pressure below 220 over 120. And specifically, don't forget that if a patient does have a cerebellar stroke, sometimes it can cause significant cerebellar edema with the potential to lead to herniation. So monitor that airway really closely and have a low threshold for a stat neurosurgical consultation for impending herniation or hemorrhage. Right. And of course, any signs of hemorrhagic stroke obviously need a neurosurgical consultation. And in terms of dissection, that's a whole other management protocol, but you do want to get your neurosurgeons and vascular surgeons on board depending on your shop. And the usual treatment is with anticoagulation and very, very close monitoring. Got it. Okay, I think we covered some big points on posterior circulation stroke, Michael. Why don't we wrap up with some take-home points? Absolutely. I have four big take-home points. I already gave you one of them, but here's the other three. First, although you think this is a relatively rare diagnosis, but not quite as rare as you think, the diagnosis is tough with serious, serious implications for this patient. Second, is it important to keep this on your deferential for any of your dizzy, weak, or nauseous patients, especially those with risk factors? Even just thinking about it will help you immensely in picking up this pretty difficult diagnosis. Third, learn how to perform and interpret the HINTS exam. And lastly, treat posterior strokes with the appropriate modality depending on your clinical picture. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today, Michael. That was a really tough topic, and I hope we were able to clear up some of the details. Also, a big thank you to Dr. Jose Torres, Assistant Professor of Neurology at NYU, who helped with reviewing our post. Please read our show notes for further learning, and feel free to leave questions or comments. Continue to follow us on Twitter at core underscore EM, and visit us on our website, coreem.net. Until the next one, this is Brian Muckle, signing off.